All right. Well, we are finishing a sermon series today called The Generosity of God. If you haven't been with us, we've said this. The default mode of the human heart is to question if God is really for us, if he will provide, if there'll be enough, if he's generous. And, and our tendency is to look to the right and look to the left and say, hey, why didn't I get that? And how, that seemed to work out better for him or for her. And what about me? And God, do you really care? And so we've been looking for three weeks here at the generosity of God, just how generous he truly is. And if you think about it, God is generosity itself. He didn't need to create any of this, but he, he did. You didn't get a vote. I, I don't remember getting a vote about being created or born, and yet in his generosity, here we are. We're made in his image. We have a calling in our life. And even living on this side of the garden, on this side of the curse of sin, God is generous, even in this period in between now and eternity. And so as we've leaned into this, I'd like us to finish this series with a question. What is one particular sin that could kind of sabotage our ability to recognize the generosity of God? There are several, but this one is rarely talked about in the church, and it seems to actually affect all of us, if we're really honest. It's envy. Anyone know why we say she was green with envy, he was green with envy? It comes from the ancient Greeks, actually. The ancient Greek thinkers thought that there was a bile produced in the human body that was kind of a greenish color that when you were really exceptionally jealous of somebody else, you started to get like a tint of green on your face. Whether that's true or not, uh, it was popularized in Shakespeare's Othello, and he has a line in there that said, envy is a green-eyed monster that consumes all. We kind of know that there is an element of truth. Whether we turn green or not with envy, we do recognize to some extent it is a sickness. Proverbs 14 says it, it decays the bones. Envy is just like a disease. And, and the problem is sometimes when, when you have it, you don't know that you have it. A bit like carbon monoxide. You don't smell it or taste it until it's too late. So let's not wait to detect it. Today we're going to be turning to 1 Samuel chapter um, 18, 1 through 16. We're going to look at a powerful case study um, of success. A young man named David, who was a nobody, instantly becomes somebody, a national folk hero for killing the giant Goliath. You might not have grown up in church, but surely you've heard of David and Goliath. And we're going to look at how two men who are actually related to each other respond to his victory. But before we do that, let's define our terms. What does envy mean? It is the internal pain we feel over someone else's success. The internal pain you feel when he does it way better than you ever could, or when she seems to have everything going right and, and, and it's not going right for you. We all relate to this to some extent. It's similar to jealousy, but it's even more insidious than that. Envy rots the bones. Here's the first uh, point if you're taking notes. How we respond to other people's wins, their victories, that actually reveals our envy or our lack thereof. How you respond when people around you are killing it, when they are getting it right, when they're getting the medal, when they're getting the recognition at work, when their kids got on the honor roll, and your kids are still trying to figure out how to tie their shoes. When everything seems to be going right in their marriage, but you know your marriage is not where it should be or where you want it to be. When 
When everyone around you seems to get married and you're always the bridesmaid, you're always a groomsman, but, and you want that and it just doesn't seem to work. How do you respond to those victories? That will tell you your level of envy. We're going to take a look at 1 Samuel. Fascinating story. David has just killed Goliath, and this is the fallout. This is the reaction. Two different responses. After David had finished talking with Saul, he's the current king of Israel, Jonathan, that is Saul's son, the prince of Israel, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. What a powerful little phrase. And he loved him as himself. Jonathan loved David as himself. What a powerful friendship. From that day, Saul, the king, kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. This is repeated. He loved him as himself. Powerful language. We'll get back to that. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. What is going on here? His response to David's victory is kind of swearing allegiance and devotion and friendship. And now the guy is getting down to his undergarments. This does not make sense to, to the modern reader. We'll, we'll explain. We'll go into it. Whatever mission King Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, that's the giant Goliath, the women of Israel came out from all the towns to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Wow. Interesting song. Saul was very what? Angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. And you got to feel for Saul. I mean, imagine you just got promoted at work and then this young upstart comes and becomes your boss overnight. And then everyone in the office starts singing like a chant. Like, you're really good, but this guy's like 10,000 times better than you. And you're like, wow, thank you. I appreciate that. This refrain displeases me greatly. And then this is where his mental reasoning goes. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. Which is an interesting line of logic for the king. If you're the king, any victory in your kingdom is your victory in a sense. But that's not how he sees it here. That's not logical, but that's the thing. When envy starts to take root in our hearts, we don't think logically, do we? What more can he get but the kingdom, Saul says. And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Envy makes Saul become insecure. He's, he's kind of watching David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. Just a note here. This, this, if this rises anxiety in you, and you're, I've met people pastorally who've asked me about this. Does, does God randomly kind of send evil spirits to torment people? No. God created conditions in, in the world where when we rebel, certain consequences often follow. And so, though this reads very woodenly that God sent a spirit, you might as well theologically also say Saul brought on the consequence of an evil spirit. The, the Hebrew here is erratic, impulsive spirit. That's what envy does, right? 
when you let envy just marinate in your heart. You start acting impulsively, erratically, illogically, and that can even grow and crescendo into evil behavior. While David was playing the lyre, form of a harp as he usually did, Saul had a spear in his hand. Saul always has a spear in his hand throughout 1 Samuel. He's an insecure leader. He's, a, he's the first king of Israel, and it's almost like he needs the spear in his hand to say, I'm in charge. Look, I've got the spear. And he's got David, a war hero, who's also a musician and a shepherd. He's willing to play any role that God wants him to play, soothing his aching head with the harp. While David was playing the lyre with the harp, as he usually did, Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. Now, you think you have a bad boss. <laughs> Some of you work in cubicles. Can you imagine just kind of keeping your head down? Because at any given moment, like a 10-foot military spear is going to be thrown. But David eluded him twice, which suggests that he's just got a pile of spears there. And whenever he gets insecure, he's throwing spears. Or does he walk up to where he missed and pulls it out of the wall and marches back and throws it again? I don't know. It's dysfunctional workplace at its best. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David. Now that's interesting. Shouldn't David be afraid of Saul, who keeps throwing spears at him, who has the authority to have him executed, who's the king? No, that's what envy does. It puts within us a fear of other people when they succeed. He was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. Saul knew it. And don't we know it too when we're in chronic rebellion? When we, when we just keep stiff-arming God and say, I know you, you say to do it this way, I'm not going to do it this way. I know you're telling me to forgive, but I'm not going to forgive. You kind of sense that the anointing, the favor of God departs from you. And it's not because God's vindictive. It's because God respects your human dignity enough that he's not going to use you as a puppet. If you don't want to partner with God, he's not going to force that on you. And the consequence is he won't be with you in the sense that he was with Saul before. He was powering all of Saul's endeavors. It's like God is saying, I am not going to make you even stronger if you want to use your strength to pin innocent people to the wall out of an envious heart with your spear. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men, and David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he was, had great success. This is David. Because what? The Lord was with him. If you read the previous chapter when he kills Goliath, he's just a ruddy-faced shepherd boy, like a, a teenager who takes on a giant that nobody in the army was willing to face down. And he doesn't say, I'm so skillful in battle. He says, the Lord is going to deliver you into my hands because you're mocking the name of the one true God. And I will not stand for that. And he's going to use me, even little old me. He continues in this line of thinking in this part of his life. When Saul saw how successful David was, he was afraid of him. This is a theme, but all Israel and Judah loved David, the two kingdoms loved David because he led them in their campaigns, 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 16. So the definition in recap is that envy is the internal pain we feel over someone else's success. And Saul is the case study. 
you can feel for him. You can see it in the, the text, in the story. He's just sitting there on his throne, and he's thinking to himself, why didn't I have the courage to get up and trust God like this little snot-nosed kid did? Why didn't I fight the giant? Then they'd be singing the songs about me. It says, actually, in 1 Samuel that Saul was a, a hesitant pick for king. You see, he's the first king of Israel, and, and the story goes like this. God's chosen people were meant to show the rest of the world what God is like and what God wants to do in the world, and so they were supposed to live very differently than the tribes and nations around them, but they come to Samuel the prophet, and they say, I want a king. We want a king. Why do you want a king, Israel? Because other nations have kings, and it makes them tough, and kings are cool, and we want to worship somebody that we can see and follow and trust and look up to. And Samuel, speaking on behalf of the one true God, says, but God's your king. You don't need a king. He said, we want a king. He said, if you have a king, the king's going to get selfish and take advantage of his position and conscript your young men into service and war and take all the best vineyards and abuse his power. This is how it goes in a sin-broken world. And they say, no, we want a king. Who do they find? They find the guy who looks the part. It says he's head and shoulders taller than everybody else. He's good looking. He's a combination of a really tall Arnold Schwarzenegger, Brad Pitt rolled into one. And he looks the part and he carries the spear. And for a while it goes well until a little teenage kid shows more faith than the king, more courage than the king. And then the king becomes obsessed, not with fighting the nations around him that are attacking the nation he is supposed to lead, but rather throwing a spear at a devoted young subject. That's what envy will do to you. That internal pain will get worse and worse if it is not attended to. I want to suggest, though, that Saul is not the only one. And as evil as throwing a spear is, we have examples of metaphorical spear throwing in our day, too. And it's a German word that we need to get up on. It's called schadenfreude. Beckensee Deutsch, anybody speak German in here? What does Schaden mean? And Freud, harm, joy, equivalent? Is that right? It's the pleasure that one derives from another person's misfortune. You see the happy baby there. Happy baby is happy because little brother or sister baby is not having a good day. It's the girlfriend who is not treated well and broken up with who has the smile when she hears that her boyfriend's business went under and his house burned down, and his new pretty girlfriend left him. It's Tom Brady looking exceptionally sad in 2018 when he lost to the Philadelphia Eagles and all the trolls on Twitter saying things like this, hashtag Super Bowl, Tom Brady should ask his wife how it feels to be with a loser. I mean, ouch, that's so mean. That's schadenfreude, right? That is the reverse of envy. It's a, it's a particular version of envy, and it's ugly when it comes up in our heart. Have you ever had this long enough to notice it in your own heart? I have. It's ugly when you, when you recognize, oh my gosh, I'm feeling a sense of satisfaction because my rival has, has failed. There's a Japanese proverb that said, the failure of one's rival is as sweet as honey. We kind of all universally understand how ugly this is in other people, and 
we, we kind of make room for it in athletics, uh, in politics. We're just so happy when that other side loses. But when it really starts to crop up in the individual heart of a follower of Jesus Christ, there is a check engine light that needs to come on and come on with a lot of blinking, and we need to pay attention to that. James warns us why. If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it, so don't make light out of it, or deny the truth. What truth? The truth that that's really destructive. That's not to be played with. Such wisdom, he's, he's saying that's actually not wisdom, quote-unquote, wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and even demonic. Schadenfreude, he said, it's a demonic thing. Do not mess with it. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. In other words, envy is a gateway drug. It's a soft drug that leads you to a lot of harder drugs. If you just get really comfortable with envy, before you know it, you're going to have bitterness and hatred and malice and gossip and all sorts of other things. It's been said that envy is responsible maybe more than any other sin for completely squelching revival in God's church. Ronald Reagan said, it's amazing how much progress can be made when no one cares who gets the credit. But that's not how we live, right? We want the credit. We want the award. We look to our left. We look to our right. We were content, but now we see that they have a little more than us. They're a little better than us. And now what we have just doesn't feel very good. Yeah, sure, 10,000 or 1,000 victories Saul had. He, he operates in the thousands. That's pretty impressive. He felt pretty good about that until this little shepherd boy, heart-playing kid with a slingshot completely broke all of his records. Some of you are athletes and you've had impressive records like in high school and you were all state or all conference or college records. How did it feel when that record fell? It hurts, doesn't it? Why? It doesn't change how impressive the thing was that you did or accomplished, but does it? Envy rises and falls on the lyrics we listen to. So as we look at the nature of this, look at what Saul does. How does the envy kind of take root in him? As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. This is a song that people are singing. And Saul becomes angry. The refrain displeases him greatly. And then he starts just rehearsing it in his mind. Hey, they're crediting him with more than me. What more can he have but the kingdom? Ironically, he's being prophetic. He's calling out what's going to happen. God is going to withdraw his favor from Saul because it became the Saul show and all about Saul, and he's going to give it to David because here we find in David a guy who doesn't get the credit. In fact, he's only concerned that God gets the credit, and that's the kind of king God is after. Someone who just points to the true king. Now, Saul did not have um, wireless earbuds but just go with me for a minute. Imagine he had those wireless earbuds and he's just kind of listening to that song. Saul kills his thousands. David is tens of thousands. Oh, tens of thousands. Repeat, Saul kills his thousands. Isn't that kind of what he's doing, the text would suggest? 
ironically, he had an, a different option. And David is the case study in, in listening to a different set of beats here. David writes the, the book of Psalms, which are prayer-like songs to God. So what if he would have, rather than ruminated on these lyrics, thought of something like Psalm 37, 5 through 7, which technically wasn't written yet, but could have been written by Saul. He could have written these lyrics instead of David, who would write them later. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteousness reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. What if Saul would have put those in-ear earbuds in and turned off the comparison lyrics and just started kind of over and over, hitting repeat, be still before the Lord, be still before the Lord, wait patiently on him, and do not fret when people succeed in their ways. Let's play that again. Be still before the Lord, wait patiently for him, and do not fret. Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust in him. We know this as parents when our kids come back and they're like, we found this really awesome artist. His name's Kanye West. And he's got some really good lyrics. And like five years ago when your teenager said that, you're like, oh, I heard some of his lyrics. I'm not sure about this Kanye West. I mean, I don't think he really has a high regard for women or these other things. But then, you know, if he, your kid were to come back today, I found this awesome artist. His name is Kanye West. You'd listen to these lyrics and it'd be like, Jesus is king. It's all about Jesus. Wow. The lyrics you choose to, to let just saturate your brain over and over, those will have a profound effect on your ability to recognize and reject envy in your life. If you just keep listening to the song of comparison and the song of dissatisfaction and the song of wanting more and more and more, guess what? You're going to be Stuck in the comparison trap. You're going to never be happy with what you have. You're always going to be striving, and you will be a very, very unhappy man, a very miserable woman. But if you, if I, listen to different lyrics full of truth and grace that remind us who we are in Jesus Christ, that remind us that God is for us and not against us, that remind us life is not measured in all the stuff we can accumulate or the fame that we can hold on to for a moment. If we listen to those lyrics, envy dies. Envy dies. Ultimately, I'd like to suggest that envy is fueled by believing lies. We're not going to talk exhaustively about these lies, but just three for your consideration if you're taking notes the lie of limited good, the lie of comparison, and the lie of greatness. And we've already talked about this in the series. Limited good is basically scarcity. It is the idea that God can only bless so many people. He can only have so many favorites. Isn't that what's going on in Saul's mind? Hey, I thought I was your anointed God. You put the anointing oil on me. I was the king, and you gave me favor in battle. And now this punk kid comes in, and they're singing these songs. If he's got your favor. Surely I can't have your favor. Now, ironically, that becomes true because Saul insists on it becoming true, but that's not how God actually wants to operate in our lives. And you know this is true if you're a parent of multiples. It, it's not like you're like looking at your kids. Hopefully, you're, you don't look at them and you're just like, I've got just so much love. 
and whichever of you performs better in my favorite athletic competition will be the loved one, and the other I shall despise. So, I mean, that would be a really hostile way to grow up, and it just wouldn't be true. And, and I remember, you know, after the birth of our first child being like, man, I love this little creature so much. I cannot literally imagine loving anybody as much. And then the second one comes, and it's like, the weirdest thing happened. I love this one just as much, but in a weirdly different, but just as strong way. And then I thought, but surely I could never love another creature. Then the third one comes in, and it's like, oh, girls are way cooler than boys. No, just kidding. I love her so much, you know? And if that's true for a very limited person with limited abilities and flawed human tendencies like you and I, if that's just true and that's just the case, how much more for an infinite God that never had a beginning and never has an end? Are you believing the lie of limited good that because your coworker was blessed, because your sister is prettier than you, because that guy seems to be more successful than you, because you're still single and you don't want to be, then God probably just ran out of favor if you're believing that style. Because as long as you believe that, envy is going to grow inside your heart, and it's ugly. And if you don't believe me, ask Saul. How about the lie of comparison? Other people's victories, they actually take away from my victory. Andy Stanley has a great talk where he talks about how we all live in the land of Ur. At which point you're all thinking in the Old Testament, is there a land of Ur geographically? What is he talking about? And he said, no, the land of Ur. Like, he's fast Ur. She's pretty-er. He's rich-er. They're happy-er. And when we live in the land of er long enough, in that comparison-like world, pretty soon we move into a new land, the land of est. I'm not just content with being stronger, better. I want to be strong-est, best, rich-est. It never is enough. And the insidious nature of it is if you live in this comparison lie long enough, you're doing one of two things. You're either looking at people and saying, I'm better than you. I'm faster. I'm stronger. I'm a better electrician. I'm a better doctor. I'm a better mom. I'm a better dad. I'm a better uh, carpenter, whatever. Or, you know, she's better. He's better. Either way, You're focusing on you more than anybody else. You're either feeling puffed up and superior because of your earnest, or you're feeling melancholy and downcast and self-loathing and pitying. Oh, man, I'm not as good as them. But the one thing that remains very constant in that equation is you. And the problem when it is that when it's all about you, you lose the very purpose you were put on earth to accomplish to be an ambassador of him, to be in a relationship with the living God and to love that God and to love other people greatly. Thirdly, lastly, the lie of greatness. Saul fell hard for the lie that greatness is defined in greater results, greater strength, greater perceived favor by God. You know, the the things that every culture on earth has measured greatness, greater fame, And so it bothered him to no end to hear the comparison songs. Have you bought into the lie of greatness? Do you feel, if you're honest with your own heart, kind of like a failure, like, I'm just not very great? Because the scorecard of greatness 
has been taken from the culture around you rather than the God who formed you. Jesus, God in the flesh, shows up and he says, you want to know what it's like to be great in my reality, in my kingdom? It's the servant. The greatest one in this kingdom is the door holder. It's not the one on stage preaching. It is the one watching the two-year-old in the nursery. It is not the board president. It's the person who sweeps the leaves outside the steps before people come to church. It is the servant, the one who is quick to take the lowest position, to just do what needs to be done out of love. You put it more succinctly, the greatest among you will be your servant. Matthew 23, 11. Now, this was an ironic moment in the Gospels because two of his disciples were following him as he was on his way to die for the sins of humankind. And their biggest question, even though they kind of know where this is going, is, hey, when you die and uh, your kingdom comes or however that's going to work, could I be like the number two guy? And could he be like the number three guy? Could we be your number two and your number three? And Jesus said, you have no idea what greatness is. You're taking cues from the Romans and the cultures around you. They lord authority over you. They are obsessed with glory and fame. In my kingdom, greatness is defined by love, not power, not dominance, not fame. It's by sacrificial love that is manifested through serving other people. When we get that straight, Envy has very little oxygen, and it dies like a fire that has been extinguished. Lastly, as we consider how to avoid the sin of envy that blinds us to God's generosity, how do we do this? How do we really kill envy? We respond to the victory of Jesus like Jonathan responded to David's victory. We respond to the victory of Jesus. What do you mean the victory of Jesus? Well, don't you know 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel? It's all pointing to Jesus. Sure, we can read these stories and we see ourselves in them and we can take out morals and lessons and that's good. But don't forget where we started. Israel wanted a king and God said, I'm your king. When you make human beings your king, you'll always be so disappointed. There's one throne of the universe and one person who rightly belongs on it, and it's not any of us. It's, it's the Messiah, the rescuer, the one who would come in the line of David. The reason for Samuel is so clear to, to, to cast David in a certain light for the first part of his life and talk about how worthy he is in comparison to Saul and his rebellion is it's getting us to look, to anticipate, to long for a better king, a king that would make it all about God a king that would come from God and worship God and be right with God. The one who is called the son of David, whose birth we are going to celebrate very shortly in this Advent season. So how did he respond to the victory of David? How did Jonathan, who, let's be honest, probably had more reason to be insecure than Saul. Saul's the king. Why, why are you insecure of a teenager who's, who's you know, winning like crazy in your name, honoring you, Saul. Why would that threaten you? If anybody should be threatened, it's Jonathan. He's a peer. He's the same age. He's the prince. He's got something to prove. He's not yet on the throne, and he has to think about rivals. And what does he do? He does the unthinkable. Jonathan became one in spirit with David. He loved him as himself. 
Jonathan makes a covenant, this mixture of law and love, unbreakable commitment to David because he loved him as himself. You know, when you love your neighbor as yourself, there's no room for envy because when you win, I am as happy for you as if it were me because I'm loving you as I would love me. And when I win, you're just as psyched as if it was your personal win because you're loving me as if it were you. Loving me as yourself. Jonathan gets this. He loved him as himself. So then what does he do? He takes off the robe. What does the robe signify? He's the prince. He's next in line. It's his royal authority. He takes off his authority, his claim to the throne of Israel. And he gives it to David. Along with his tunic and even his sword, there's a lot of symbolism in this. If you wanted to do a deep dive, go for it. It's great. His ability to protect his own kingdom. He gives that to the rightful king. His authority he gives to the king, even his bow, he was a great archer. He gives his best gift, the thing that everybody said, you're the best. I'm gonna give it to you. You're the rightful king. I don't own that gift. Even his belt that held up everything, his security. He's sitting there in his boxer shorts or whatever they wore back then. And it's like he's standing before the one true king who comes in, in the name of the one true God and he says, Look, I know my whole life I've been told that I belong on the throne. I've even believed it myself, but now that I've had an encounter with the true king, you're the one who belongs on the throne. Take everything I have. That is the answer. You're like, what? You want me to take off all my clothes? No, keep, keep yourself clothed. We're not taking off tunics today, but we are invited to take off our claim to the throne, to stand in the presence of God. And let's just break this down and make it easy. This is what it would look like. Here's 1 Samuel 18, two through four, slightly edited. What if you said this and it was true of your heart? I became one in spirit with Jesus, the true king. And I love Jesus as myself. And I made a covenant with Jesus because I loved him as my Self. I took off the identity I was wearing, the identity I've clung to my whole life, and I gave it to Jesus. Along with everything I have put my hopes and dreams in before I met Jesus. That's what we're invited to do in 1 Samuel. If you want to kill envy, get off the throne. It's not yours. You won't like it if you insist on sitting there and invite the true king who is gentle and strong and kind and wise and who loves you more than anyone who has ever loved you has loved you. Invite him and him alone to sit on the throne of your life. Again, I would welcome you to invite friends and neighbors to this new series as we become countercultural in this Advent season, lean into what I'm not doing for Christmas. As we uh, respond with the final worship song, why not do a little business with God? Why not just say, God, I want to get off the throne of my life. I, whatever I need to give over to you, I want to give it to you. You're the true king. And would you remove the envy? Would you remove 
the lies that I've been telling myself and believing? Would you help me to love you as I love myself and love my neighbor as I love myself? Would you sit on the throne of my life? Would you stand as